So for me, human-centered design, I liken it to x-ray vision. It enables us to really see through and understand what really drives and motivates people. What's up? Welcome to Same Same But Tech, a podcast where we explain the most talked about tech buzzwords, one analogy at a time. I'm Mohan, and today is all about human-centered design. Do you ever stop and think, hmm, who designed this toothbrush? Who designed all toothbrushes? Oh my gosh, what about floss or sinks or chairs or phones or headphones? Well, designers did. And I don't mean designers in the sense of people who create logos or make stuff look good. Sure, they do that stuff too. But when we talk about design, we're talking about a more holistic process of product creation. We're talking about unearthing your deep down core human needs. One of those needs might be to make a great first impression with your pearly white teeth. So designers create a product that helps you do that, but it also fits nicely in your hand. And it's a vessel for toothpaste. And it has these colored bristles that tell you when it's time to get a new one. In doing this type of holistic design, many designers follow this process that's called human-centered design. Human-centered design is an approach and a mindset for solving human problems with new products or new services or new experiences. And unlike other problem-solving methods like, I don't know, algebra, which is completely and utterly useless, human-centered design is actually quite useful. And it follows this ethos to focus or center on, you guessed it, the human. What that means is that the resulting solutions should address a deep-down, intrinsic core need. In this episode of Same Same, we debunk the myth that design is just about making products shiny and colorful. Instead, we explore human-centered design, a process for creating new products, new services, and new experiences, all designed to make you happy. For me, the analogy around human-centered design, I, I, I tend to think about x-ray vision almost as a superpower. And I, I like to imagine that human-centered design can help all of us just understand, like, how do we peer through a lot of the things that get in our way of understanding you know, what's really happening with our customers, with our key stakeholders that we're serving and, and designing for, building products for? How can we discover the deeper why behind what motivates people to progress and do the things that they naturally want to do? And how, to, how can we best tap into that? And to do that, I think X-ray vision, human-centered design is helpful to help distill like what's really important driving people. May I ask who's calling? So my name is Kevin Bethune. I'm the founder and chief creative officer of Dreams Design and Life. I also serve as the board chair for the Design Management Institute. And I'm a first-time author uh, writing a book for the MIT Press. Kevin is a dear friend, a former colleague, and a brilliant human-centered designer. One thing you learn working with designers like Kevin is that they love to ask why. Why do things matter to you? Why is that important? Why do you feel that way? 
So maybe as a little bit of payback, let's ask Kevin why. Why does human-centered design matter? Why do companies use human-centered design? They have a platform, they have a product line, but they're looking for that, that answer for the next big thing that's going to drive a new business unit, a new source of growth. So human-centered design, is it more akin to developing and creating new experiences and new products, innovating new things? I think there's different flavors of what you would consider new. I mean, there might be products already in the market that need sort of a reimagination or a touch-up to be more relevant in a changing world. Exactly. Companies leverage human-centered design to create new products and new experiences or to even touch up or reimagine existing ones. Innovation firms like BCG Digital Ventures and IDEO are famous for this type of new product or venture development, as are more established tech companies. As we all know, Apple is famous for their design and for their use of human-centered design to introduce both new products like the iPad or to reimagine an existing product like a stylus. I sketch a lot. And for them to come up with a product holding an Apple Pencil, right? They could have easily presented a stylus that didn't quite fit ergonomically. It didn't quite behave the way it should behave. The behavior of this feels like I'm holding a, a Prismacolor pencil. And... You know, drawing on glass is like 99% of the same feeling that I would have with a piece of paper and a pen. And I don't have to think about the tech. I just get into my ideation. So personally, like I appreciate the human-centered sensibilities that went into the design of this and how it talks to a tablet and how the software all works. Like there was a lot of human-centered challenges to overcome to have such a fluid, frictionless experience. The way Kevin speaks about design gets me so hyped up. Design is not just about good visual design and aesthetics. Yes, it is about those things, but design is actually a much broader discipline that learns and reacts to human needs and that should be involved in every step of product development. I I agree. I mean, I think historically, design has sort of suffered the the unfortunate uh, perception of being the very last step in the value chain of anything that we build. It's please make a logo or please make the idea that's already conceived look pretty. Make it make it look pretty exactly. <laughs> don't don't get me wrong though. We still need you know we still need people that are really good at craft to execute thoughtful outcomes, right? But at at the same time, I think human centered design can be helpful to uh, really position design at the strategy table with other disciplines to just help understand how we can surface meaningful opportunities shape businesses by looking at the human-centered realities that are apparent among our stakeholders and make sure that that's included in the problem-solving at the very front. Diving into this process, we quickly realize that human-centered design is rooted in a core single element, empathy. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. And just like in life, It is one of the most important elements of designing new products and solutions. Before you even start thinking about a solution, you truly need to put yourself in others' shoes and understand the people who experience the problem. When we start any investigation, I I think personally, my first conviction is, who are we serving? Asking that question 
And how well do we know that audience or those set of audiences? And nine times out of 10, usually it's the, the deeper qualitative substance that's not particularly there and we need to go find it. So the first conversation usually is like, give me whatever data you have on your audience and who do you wish you had that you don't speak to already? And let's unpack and frame like where the gaps are. Broadly speaking, this part of the design process is often called need finding. It's a deep dive on the human or the human condition, and it's typically prompted by thinking, hey, let's come up with a better version of something. And that's where X-ray vision comes in, is like we, we have to peer through the preconceived notions. We have to, we have to peer through the, the market conceptions of how things are supposed to just behave and question everything. I already have these like preconceived notions of the paradigms of how people purchase and how suppliers are supposed to offer products and services for them to consume. But that's just at the surface level. And what we often don't do enough or spend enough time doing is delayering and, and unmasking what's really driving people. Like what, what is the core value criteria that makes someone even want to be open to considering a new thing in their lives? You know, they might have uh, motivations around trust, privacy, loyalty, like these deep human innate traits that we need to just unpack and and distill. The design process is about asking questions instead of making assumptions. You must adopt this learner's mindset when you're speaking with those who experience a problem. And since designers don't actually have x-ray vision, they leverage other tools to develop that empathy that they need to design game-changing solutions. These tools range from old-fashioned research to quantitative surveys to focus groups. But perhaps the most favored method of need-finding or of design research is called ethnography, or ethno for short. Ethno is kind of just a fancy term for observing and speaking with someone in their natural, real-life habitats. Uh, of course, we we need to have you know a long concerted conversation, but it needs to be an open ended conversation where we we look for clues, and some of those clues might exist within the gaps between the concrete realities that are their normal course of life every day and their aspirations, the things that they sort of envision for themselves in the future. And this is where asking why becomes invaluable. It's, it's extremely important, and it sort of plays in the analogy where X-ray vision can be helpful, so we, we understand like the deeper, the deeper why driving people's behavior and just like you know skimming them for conclusive evidence to inform a strategy. Like we, we need the deeper substance. So that's where you know asking why a million times to get to the deeper substance is, is pivotal. And as a designer, like I need to bring back that substance and treat it like clay to be able to shape something new. Another key aspect of ethnography is to do it in someone's real-life environment, often at their workplace or in their home. Being in those real-world environments clue you in on the actual realities of an end user. There's usually a disconnect between the, the, the behaviors that we exemplify in today's realities versus the things that we dream of for our future. And how do we distill and unpack the contradictions and get closer? And sometimes it may be super difficult to get the person to articulate that in a conversation. It may be really hard. Look, 
If you talk to me about my eating habits, I'd say I eat very healthy. But if you were to snoop around in my kitchen, you may quickly realize that I exist entirely on a diet of Pop-Tarts and La Croix. So there's other open source techniques. We might spend some time building something together, solutioning together, storyboarding together, or building something together, and then having conversations around the discoveries and unlocks as as people are talking through those motions. So again, it, it goes back to we have to treat investigation as a very open, multimodal approach and pick the right tools and frameworks and techniques that are appropriate for the task at hand. This entire process of investigation, of discovery, of need finding is really just the first part of human-centered design. It helps us to find the issue we're trying to solve. Uncovering those human needs is what sparks the opportunity for innovation and eventually leads us to brainstorm and design new solutions. But, of course, like any creative process, this one is anything but linear. It's a nonlinear soup, right? And yes, yes, I think it, you, we do need to vacillate, make sure we're, we're pushing the boundaries and going wide and deep, wide and deep. But it vacillates, honestly. And we're also juggling parallel path investigations as well. And that's all part of the creative process because ultimately we want our teams to be able to feel like they can actually develop natural sparks and connections between mm -hmm. different insights. It makes me chuckle thinking about it's difficult to visually design what a design process looks like. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you see in my late... <laughs> exactly, a, a scribble. I, you, we, we joke, but literally in my content lately, I, I show a scribble on a slide because that's, let's be honest about it. So a human-centered designer is a person who starts with empathy and tries to solve problems by understanding humans. So the, my analogy is, imagine a human-centered designer was like your favorite grandmother who just loved you so much she wanted you to have everything just the way you wanted it. And she makes you the best, like the best comfort food because she knows what you love. So a human-centered designer is like a grandma making you comfort food, and he always hits the mark. <laughs> a grandma. The man behind that wonderful analogy is our good friend, Bill Burnett. I'm uh, the executive director of the design program at Stanford. We have an undergraduate and a graduate program in uh, human-centered design. We call it design thinking. I'm also a professor. I teach a lot of classes. Uh, I'm a dad and uh, recently the author of a couple of books where we applied human-centered design to life called uh, Designing Your Life and designing your work life. We'll get to designing your life a little bit later, but first, tell me more about how human-centered design is like my favorite grandma. You know, the kind of grandma who just hugs you and makes you want to feel great. And a human-centered designer, if they're doing a good job, it's just like that grandmother. They're trying to understand your needs, and not just the easy stuff like, oh, I wish my, my phone had more battery life or something, but the, the really deep needs that are embedded in the story of your life, and they try to take that, those things and produce products or services or experiences that are just absolutely delightful and extraordinary. So it's like a grandma making you comfort food. So we already spoke about empathy and problem definition. Next, once you're armed with this deeper understanding of a user and their needs, 
it's time to brainstorm solutions, which are often products, and design them in as frictionless of a way as possible. This is how you design really amazing apps. You know, the apps on your phone and like, how do you make them easy? You know, how do, why, why, why did Instagram beat Hipstamatic? You know, Hipstamatic was the hot program before Instagram came out, but it took four, four clicks to get your picture on social media and Instagram, it was like one click, boom. So they took all the friction out of the design and that's, a, that's in an app. Not only do great products remove friction, but they make our lives easier and more fun. Maybe even a little bit delightful. And there's an old saying in design that form follows function, right? Okay, but isn't one of the functions of the stuff we design to be beautiful? Why wouldn't we make a beautiful world? If we, if we, if we knew how to do it, why wouldn't we do that too? Because so much of our world you know, is designed and the aesthetic of that design changes how we feel. So, you know, I was at Apple. Apple is you know, well-known for just building very beautiful, very simple, very pure, very you know, gorgeous-looking products. But now you see that showing up everywhere because it, it, nobody wants to, you know, nobody tolerates ugly stuff anymore, right? Now, you know, if you'd been to Europe, we, the, the American designers are always sort of very um, envious of European design because if you go around Europe, every, you know, the Italians have beautiful design and you know, the Germans have very beautiful, rational design. You know, the difference between a Porsche and a Ferrari is the difference between a German and an Italian, right? I mean, they both are fast cars. They both do the exact same thing. But one is beautiful and clean and pure, and it's got great lines. And the other one is emotional and irrational and, you know, organic and sexy looking. It's just different cultures create different aesthetics. But boy, don't we, don't we all deserve beautiful design, beautiful experiences, beautiful services? And certainly beautiful products. And beautiful podcasts. Okay, we empathize with an end user. We define a problem. We set out to create a beautiful, frictionless solution. What is next? How do we actually develop a product? Well, the next step is to start prototyping. A prototype is an early iteration of your solution, which is usually half-baked, but it can still be used to test and refine all of your assumptions. Yeah, well, pretty, and we, we, you know, we try not to do too, much, too many jargony things in, in, in human-centered design, but prototyping, we, we talk about prototyping in particular ways. So we're talking about these very early, very fast iterations of, of a product. You know, they could be just made out of cardboard or just out of paper. When we're doing an app, and when I prototype an app, instead of writing a lot of code, which takes a lot of time, we just put a pad of post-its on top of an app. First post-it, first screen. Second post-it, second screen. Third post-it, third screen. It's really fast, right? I can make 15 different versions of my you know, sign-on uh, flow with post-its and some markers. So we, look at, we think about prototyping as trying to f you know, ask an interesting question. Like, would it be easier to do it this way or that way? Post-its mimicking what an app would look like is the ultimate low-fidelity prototype just like grandma used to make. Yeah, or even like you're making the spaghetti sauce and she says, here, taste this. Is, is it got enough salt? You want a little more salt? You know, is it sweet enough? You know, it's that constant tasting prototyping, we would call it, to get to the perfect spaghetti sauce, the one that you really like. To me, the coolest thing about this part of human-centered design is that once an end user sees a prototype, new needs might actually emerge. You think, wow, I didn't 
know a phone could do this. But now that I do know, I want this and this. Ooh, that too. (laughs) It's always this brilliant moment when you're co-creating with a user and they're imagining themselves in this brand new world all centered around your prototyped solution. And all of a sudden, they're thinking of all sorts of new things they want to do with it. And that's where you get magic, because then, you, then you've invented something that no one's ever seen before. The only way to do that is to trigger your imagination by giving you something you can actually try. And then we all go off on this imagination journey together, and you come up with things like the iPhone. Normally at Apple, you know, the marketing group says, hey, we'd like a big iPad and a small iPad. Here's the specification. And then our design teams would go off and they'd build that. But how do you specify something that's never existed before? You know, I wasn't on the iPhone team. I was gone from Apple long before that. But I know some of the guys and they built like 300 prototypes. <laughs> they showed Steve the, the, three times. They showed him a prototype. They said, this is it. And he said, no, it's not good enough. This is it. No, it's not good enough. Now, actually, he's he was ruder than that, but I won't go into what he actually said. But he was looking for something that put, you know, was more than the sum of the parts. And they were just showing him parts. When they actually hit on, you know, like, it's not just, you know, your email and your music and a browser and, you know, the internet and a phone. Because when you put that all together, all these new behaviors occur, right? And it took them a lot of prototypes to figure out, kind of what was the kernel of that idea of it. But man, they, they, you know, they nailed it. They invented you know, the modern smartphone. Talk to me more about that, actually. I think that's really cool to think about. How did Apple go about making products that were category disruptors, right? Because if my grandma's asking me if I'm hungry, I say yes. And she's like, okay, what do you want? Like, I give her some semblance of something I want. but And normally it's something you've had before, right? Right. So how does she go about creating something completely new and different that still nails my needs? Well, you know, there's this, there's a rumor in the press that Apple doesn't do market research. Apple just knows, you know, Steve just knows the right idea. And that's, that's true and not true at all. It doesn't take a genius to know that, you know, in 20, 2006, if you didn't have a phone or a digital, some kind of digital device, a phone or something, that you were going to be cut out of all the data stream in the world. And, you know, and there were, there were people were starting to build, you know, remember the sidekick and, and there was a couple other early prototypes of these things, but it was pretty clear that Apple needed something in that space. So that's that's the decision Steve made. Let's put a lot of money and time. Let's figure out what this is, but I don't want to just do a Me Too thing. So partly you have a CEO who's saying, here's the spec, insanely great. When it's insanely great, I'll let you know. Just keep building, right? So that's crazy. But they, but they did tons and tons and tons of user observations. And I mean, simple thing. Remember, did, I mean, I don't know. Did you ever have a flip phone? You know, a phone like uh, the hot phone for designers was the Motorola Razor. Everybody had a Razor, right? And my design friends had a Razor before the iPhone. Or if you're a business person, you had a BlackBerry. So if you if you actually look at the blogs and the guys who are trying to predict what's Apple going to do, they're doing a phone. The rumors they're doing a phone. They thought it was going to be sort of an aluminum thing like a like the Razor but with a keyboard like the BlackBerry. That was the prediction. Because that's you saying, well, I don't know, maybe pizza or maybe some spaghetti, you know, because I've had those before. You're not going to say, you know what I really want? I want a cheese souffle. I don't even know what that is, but I've heard it's cool. You don't do that, right? You just say, I want something I've had before. So Steve sets the bar, insanely great. And then the team just does relentless, you know, observations. And one of the things about a flip phone was, you'd, you know, you'd called me and said, hey, Bill, um, what's Lee's number? I would have said, uh, 
you know, I know it's in here, it's in my address book, but I'll probably hang up on you because I got to go up and down two menus. So if I hang up, I'll call you back. And I mean, everybody had that conversation. And then you look for the menu and then you hung up. <laughs> so that doesn't tell you, oh, a smartphone should have a graphic user, you know, a user display this graphic and that names should be scrollable. But it, but it tells you that this, this modal up and down software tree thing is a disaster. And so once, once you start looking at, at what if we change the paradigm and what if were things, if the information was available because it was visual and you could just touch it, you start to go, oh, wait a minute, that changes everything. That cha now we can put maps on this thing. Wow, if we had maps, not only could I find my way to the store, but Apple could know where I'm going. <laughs> really great story with a great takeaway. Be relentless with your testing of your prototypes. Good human-centered designers lead with empathy, define the problem, brainstorm solutions, and then rapidly build, test, and iterate prototypes with their end users. If your solution turns out to be clunky or confusing, challenge yourself to make it dead simple. It's so much harder to make something simple than to make something complicated. And once you find that frictionless, simple, beautiful solution to an innate human need, well, that is human-centered design. One more thing. You thought I forgot, didn't you? You can also apply human-centered design to your life. Bill co-teaches one of Stanford University's most popular courses, and it's on that topic. And he also co-authored the New York Times bestseller, Designing Your Life. Which all leads me to one question. How? Well, Bill was kind enough to give us the quick and dirty version exclusively for Same Same. Designing Your Life in, in less than two minutes, and actually in 10 words. So it's, it's, about, it's about what's the mindset and what's the process. So first, get curious. Second, go talk to people. People are interesting. Third, try stuff, prototype. And then fourth, tell your story. And, and not bragging, you're just telling your story of your journey. I'm, I was curious about this. I met this guy who does these really cool podcasts. We had a long conversation. I learned a lot. Then I tried, you know, I just mocked up a quick podcast on my own, realized how hard it was. And now I'm telling you this story. Who else do you think I should talk to? So get curious, talk to people, try stuff, tell your story is a, is a loop that comes back to, oh, you should go talk to this guy or you should go talk to that girl. Or this. So if, if you start with the mindset of curiosity and, and you're willing to put yourself in the world and expose your crazy ideas to other people, and that leads to experiences that you can have, prototypes, and then you're just really open and reflective about what's, what's happening to you, you know, the rational part of your brain. So, so you, you got to learn to listen. All right, we learned all about need finding and the importance of empathy, defining problems, brainstorming solutions and prototyping to test and even designing your own life. We are fluent in human-centered design. So looking forward 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, how does this design our future? Well, grandma's a robot. <laughs> no, I won't suggest we pop in a copy of Blade Runner and start playing. <laughs> I won't go to the this 
dystopian end of the spectrum. Uh, I've been actually inspired by friends that have been very much advocates of protopian future visions. So like friends like Monica Belskite and others who are really just able to connect the dots and like, what can we learn from these histories, from these cultures, from these societies? Like we can actually tap into what makes us most human. And can we actually, you know, engineer and and design the guiding principles that inform the next gen AIs, uh, quantum computing structures, whatever it might be, to ensure that we as human beings actually get more time to focus on our true purpose in this world, uh, to help every human find their 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 lane of individuality, and to feel like they can leave this earth manifesting their 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 best impact their best legacy based on the individual talents that only they possess? Like, how can we get people to find their flow state, channel their energy to unlock their truest potential? Like, that's where I hope Singularities AI, whatever you want to call it, these these platforms and mechanisms, if they can help automate all the things that we don't need to spend our calories on so that we can spend more time focusing on what drives the most humane impact in this world. So when I, when I look out into the future, particularly for designers, human-centered designers, we will have more tools you know, at our disposal. If you think about it, there's something like 3 billion product reviews now on Amazon. So what a lot of designers are doing and sort of with big data is you just scrape up, you know, like, I'm going to design a new toaster oven. Let me just go get 50,000 reviews of toaster ovens from 2,000 different toaster ovens and see what people say, and, and mine the text for patterns. So that's a new thing, and that will continue to grow. And we can use that to support the interesting questions of why. More important thing is that I believe we will become more human. We will get out of our bubbles, we'll get out of our, our you know, echo chamber. So we, we have to be more responsible as designers. We have to be more thinking more about sustainability and more about the planet and less about just extracting resources, making stuff, and then throwing it away. And to some extent, when we make a brand new thing and it's cooler than the old thing, we're kind of encouraging that consumer behavior. And it's a little bit of a dilemma, particularly in tech products, because the new things really are more capable. But how can we make tech products more recyclable, more sustainable? And I think designers understand that's their, that's their responsibility now. Also, you know, we're, we're going to do a big scrub of our curriculum around uh, equity, inclusion, and white privilege because, you know, the, the notion that, hey, I can go out in the world and figure out what you need is only true if I recognize my own internal biases and I, and I, and I have a multidisciplinary team and I, and I really think about including everybody, not just the folks who can afford, you know, that hot new Apple thing. The world is complex. It's nuanced. Uh, the world is, has been defined by systemic threads of, of injustice, of societal concern, of environmental you know, collateral damage. And there's all kinds of histories and threads and, and interdependencies that you know, we just have to make sure that the teams doing the work are as representative of the audiences and of the greater society that we're serving. And so are we also like bringing in the experts to co-create with us, the scientists, the the lawyers? I'm, you know, it's like the multidisciplinary soup of people that are needing to be involved in these future problems are going to be a lot more diverse and varied than we've ever seen. That's my prediction. So we have to be aware of our, you know, uh, unconscious biases and our uh, accidental damage that we might do to the environment or accidental damage we do to cultures. I think that's important for our future.
Have you ever wondered how your favorite product came to be? Or maybe one you never really thought about? Well, chances are there's a human-centered designer behind it, one who thought deeply about you and your needs before brainstorming, prototyping, testing, and refining that solution. In the world we live in today, maybe there's something we can learn from that process. See, the underlying thread of this episode was empathy. Empathy has to do with spending time with others, asking questions and asking why. Learning to step into someone else's shoes to understand their feelings, their perspectives, their point of view. This helps us bring differing voices together to form inclusive solutions. And to do so, you have to embrace others openly with a learner's mindset. You have to listen. You can't assume. Look, what's going on in our country right now is pretty bleak. And we're not here to suggest a solution or even a prototype. But we just wouldn't feel right if we stayed silent. We need to, we have to, we want to encourage others to at least listen. Because empathy matters. Black lives matter. (laughs) Wow. That is the last track of our first season of the Same Same But Tech podcast. Same Same But Tech season one was written and hosted by me, Mohan M. Zanuzi, produced, designed, and everything else by my brilliant co-founder, Kareen Javier, and the genius, Lee Schneider, executive produced by the most amazing Steph Wolf. Music by Oovra. <laughs> Thank you to the best design, innovation, and incubation team in the world, BCG Digital Ventures, for all of your support. And thank you to our guests, Kevin Bethune and Bill Burnett. You can find more Same Same on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your ear candy. Guys, we are humbled and we are grateful for all of you who listen, who subscribe, and who show us support. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for listening. Spread love. This episode was brought to you in part by BCG Digital Ventures. BCGDV builds revolutionary new businesses with the world's most influential corporations. Learn more at bcgdv.com. Well, I did a, I, uh, when I was consulting, I did a big project for the Kohler company, the, the big plumbing company in, out of Wisconsin. They make elegant, beautiful things. But we were looking at, um, you know, touchless faucets where, you know, you just put your hands under and we wanted, and we had a touchless uh, toilet. And so we, we were literally taking radar signatures of people's butts on toilets to try to figure out how do they move and when can we figure out when to flush and not to flush too soon and. It was quite strange. That we were looking, we were fishing for an Easter egg. I think we just got it for the end of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) So, should we do a second season of Same Same? Hmm. Yeah. Stay tuned.